Our second passage is from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, read in the New Living Translation. All praise to God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He showered us his kindness on us, along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so that we would praise and glorify him. The word of the Lord. Well, uh, school is almost out for you public school kids, private and homeschool. You're probably already out. But I wanted to make sure we stayed fresh over the summer. So how about a little sentence diagramming? You, didn't, you know what sentence diagramming is, right? You start with a subject, identify the subject, the, the verb. You have your adverbs or your prepositional phrases branching off of that. She swims very well. And this is how you diagram a sentence, right? Now, one of the challenges this morning is our passage, as we're looking at being gospel-driven people, our passage, as we're going through the, the gospel statements in the letters of Paul, is Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is one long sentence in the Greek. It is actually unclear where the verbs are, where the participles are, which ones are subordinate clauses. So one attempt at, um, at diagramming it looks like this. Um, so one option this morning is to just walk through this sentence diagram of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, because often actually there is a good way to read scripture, and especially the letters of Paul, is by diagramming a sentence, figuring out what is the primary thing he's saying, what is subordinate. 
But with Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, it's nearly impossible. And so instead, I want us to think about three key ideas that I see presenting themselves here in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. One is God's blessing. Two is God's reign. And three is God's story. God's blessings, his reign, and his story. So we start with verse three, and it's worth rereading this. Paul starts off in verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, as I said, this is all one sentence. And in many ways, this is like Paul gushing forth his praise of who God is and what he's done. As some of you know, we, uh, as we're going through this series, I'm encouraging us to read along in advance, to read and memorize and meditate on the passage leading up to Sunday. And even if you're bold enough to post to Facebook your own ideas, insights, connections, questions, and one guy who passed it on to me to post because he's not on Facebook said, this reminds me of a picture, and he showed a picture of a guy drinking from a fire hose. Trying to understand Ephesians 1 is like drinking from a fire hose. And I think that's right, because what happens is Paul gets so caught up in excitement as he's contemplating God and what God has done that the words just fumble out, dump out, pour out, shout out. He's so overwhelmed with worship of God. And he's pouring that out and sharing it with us. The fire hose is blessing and praise of God for how he has blessed us. Now, who doesn't want to be blessed, right? We all want to be blessed. And that's a religious phrasing. But what do we mean when we say, I want to be blessed? Ultimately, it generally falls on each of us to determine what that blessing is. And it could be different for every person. I, I remember being in England in our first month in England and going to the local grocery store, the Tesco. And I walked into the Tesco and I'm shopping. And in the next aisle over, the aisle that had cookies and candy, although they don't call it that in England, they call it something else, I heard a five-year-old child screaming and screeching at his mother. Mummy, sweeties! I started laughing. <laughs> Mummy, sweeties! Partly because he was using those words, but also at the audacity of this kid screeching hysterically at his mom. I want sweeties now! For that five-year-old kid, every blessing he could imagine was bound up in candy at that moment. And for some of us, the idea of God's blessing really is what I want right now. Now, many of us are wise enough to move beyond the immediate demands. And we talk about blessing in a way that's very mature. We say, I'm blessed. Usually what we mean by I'm blessed is having physical and circumstantial ease or prosperity. Think about how we use I'm blessed. We say, I'm blessed, and we're talking about our marriage, a good 20-year marriage. I'm blessed with my marriage. Or I'm blessed with health, good health right now. Or financially, I'm blessed. I, I don't have to worry about my next meal or next paycheck. 
or I've been blessed in my career successes. I think this is off from what Paul is pointing us to in Ephesians 1. He's pointing us to something far deeper than the physical and the circumstantial. But very often, we have a hard time getting past that. Think about the content of much of our prayers. Much of the content of our prayers is, Lord, make me better or keep me from getting sick. Help me to get this job. I pray that my kid doesn't get cut from this team. And it's not that we shouldn't be praying for those temporal and circumstantial and physical needs. But I think to limit the blessing of God to simply those things is to miss out on something far deeper and richer that Paul is talking about. You see the deeper understanding of blessing if you travel to the developing world. I remember a number of years back when I was working as, at a minister in Richmond and our youth group went on a trip to Belize, a developing country on the edge of Mexico. And one of the boys who came back, who was a rising senior, was blown away by what he saw. Specifically, he saw Christians living in deep poverty. They lived at some of these villages they visited were families who lived in essentially shacks or sheds on dirt floors. And yet these people had deep joy. And they were incredibly generous, sharing the one or two things they had with the the youth group as they came through, trying to feed them, even though they barely had enough themselves. That kind of joy and generosity that is not bound up in our circumstances is an understanding of blessing that is far deeper than we tend to go here in America. It sounds more like what Paul talks about in his letter to the Philippians, when he says, I have learned, I have learned what it is to, in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned the secret of facing plenty or hunger, abundance or need. To have a contentment that is not wrapped up in our circumstances, whether we get what we want, whether we stay healthy, whether everything goes our way in life, that prosperity and ease are not the only way to understand the blessings of God. When we go to Scripture, we find that the blessings of God are far deeper and they're bound up in who God is and what he's done. You see, the Old Testament had an idea of God and God's blessing that was basically God fulfilling his promises for us, God's presence with us, and God's peace being found in all of that. And when we get to the New Testament, the blessings of God are always bound up in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. They're bound up in the gospel. True blessing may may involve something far deeper than our temporary physical circumstances. That's what Paul is pointing at here. He said, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. And how has God blessed us? Well, we see it in our passage here. God has blessed us with salvation. In verse 7, we read, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So one of the key elements of our blessing is that we have been redeemed and we have been forgiven. That word redeemed, it's translated very well in in the New Living Translation when it says that God purchased our freedom. 
To be redeemed is to be set free from slavery or prison. That our natural state is bound and enslaved to sin. And because of Christ, we've been set free. Not only that, our sins have been forgiven, which is a word which means to have our sins sent away. God no longer counts our offenses against us. We are free and right with God through Jesus Christ. That is true blessing. Not only that, he says in in Ephesians 1 that one of the key elements of true blessing is that we now have an eternal family. In verse 5, we read that God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. You know, on a day like Father's Day, it can be a great and wonderful and celebratory day for many of us, but for others of us, it's a painful day. A day of remembering that you lost your dad too early, never knew your dad, or struggled with a father who was not the loving father that you wanted him to be. But the message of hope in the gospel is that we have a loving father who has adopted all of us and says, I love you as my sons. Do you know what kind of an encouraging word this was for people in that culture who were orphans or slaves and had no hope? And that's the word of hope he offers to all of us. And I will have to say that the the phrasing there is adoption as sons, and some of us have a little bit of a challenge of the non-gender neutral language there. But there's an intentionality in that. The intentionality is this. A son, only a son could inherit property. And only by inheriting property did you have status in the community and a future hope. As Paul says elsewhere in the book of Galatians, all of us, slave or free, male or female, are now made sons, meaning our status is equally high. We're put on par with Christ himself, brought into the family of God. And the glorious thing about being adopted in Roman law was once you were adopted in Roman law, you could not be disinherited. A born son could be disinherited. An adopted son legally could not. There is assurance of who we are in Christ. And it also ties to that idea of inheritance, that we have a family and we have a hope. In verse 14, we read that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That all of us who come to faith in Christ have a hope and a future because of Jesus Christ. We have salvation, we have family, and we have purpose in life. In verse 4, we read that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. That phrase, holy and blameless, is a Hebraism that was used for sacrifices. Lambs and goats were holy and blameless if you were going to sacrifice them. And in the New Testament, it's pointing to Jesus Christ himself, who was the true atoning sacrifice for our sins, the one who was holy and blameless. And yet here, we're called as those who have been chosen to be holy and blameless, to be like Christ. We have a purpose 
It is to become the people God made us to be, to be more and more and more like Jesus himself. You see, true blessing is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, saving us, adopting us, inheriting us, and giving us purpose and a future. And all of it, all of it, all of it is bound up in Jesus Christ. As Corky said, multiple times we read, in him, in Christ, more than a dozen times Jesus is mentioned as the focal point of everything that's happening in this gospel declaration. Christ is the central agent of all of our blessing, the way we experience God's blessing, the aim and end of all things. In and through Christ, we experience the presence of God. And the great news about all of the blessings of God being ours in Christ is that it's by grace. If everything goes through Christ and we receive everything because of Christ, then the blessings of the gospel are not because of what we do, but because of what Christ did. Through Christ, God purposed and acted for us. God's blessings are what he offers us through his son in the gospel. Second thing we see in this passage is the reign and rule of God. This passage is filled with the idea that God is in control. And in Christian circles, we use this phrase, God is sovereign. Well, sovereign is really just king, right? The sovereign of England, the king of England. So God is the king. And and the idea in the Bible is nothing is outside of the rule and reign of God. That all of history and all of creation and even our lives are within his control. Now this, this idea of the sovereignty of God is one of the most assuring and freeing doctrines in Christianity. But it's also one of the most confounding and challenging. Because we can ask, well, does this mean we're just puppets controlled by God? If God is in control, what does that say about suffering and evil? It's my intention this morning to be cowardly and sidestep the depth of that question. In part, in part because tackling it would involve hours and hours and not 20 minutes. And in part because Ephesians 1 describes God as in control. It doesn't seem to answer the questions we tend to be asking. But I want to step into this idea of God's sovereignty his predestining purposes, his reign and rule just a little bit, because I think there's great assurance in it as well. So the question is this. The question that we might ask is, are we bound up by fate and destiny, or are we free to choose? Now, as Westerners, as Americans, we think, and we tend to think, we we are free to choose. So we tell kids, you can become whatever you want to be. Just set your mind to it, and you can become what you want to be. Except we know that there's limits to that too, right? I mean, at age 11, what did I want to be? The quarterback of the Pittsburgh Steelers. I was determined that that was what I wanted to be. But there were forces outside of my control 
that constrained my ability to choose and become whatever I wanted to become. Circumstances. I grew up in Vienna, not Texas. Genetics. I was small, slow, weak-armed. So, in a sense, I wasn't totally free. I was already bound by things outside of my control. My choices were limited. In certain cultures, the idea of fate or destiny, not free choice, is what reigns. In traditional cultures, who you were is based on your family or your caste, and that fixed you so that you have no way out. Well, of course you're like that. We know your family name. In the social sciences today, there's more and more credibility given to environmental causes, to the role that our family of origin plays in growing up. And many of us know this. As a teenager, what do you say? I will never be like my parents. And then 20 years later, you realize, I am a lot like my parents. In the physical and hard sciences, they might even say we are genetically predisposed towards certain things, that over the course of years of evolution, we have been bound into certain directions, and even the idea that there is a hope and a future is really just a human contrived idea to help us to survive, that we don't really have free choice, that we are bound by fate and destiny. But what does the Bible say? Are we predestined, predestined by God, or are we free to choose, responsible for our choices? Yes. Any theology that jumps away from the predestining sovereign purposes of God strays from Christian thought. But any theology that says that you are not responsible for the choices you make also strays from Christian doctrine? The answer is yes. God is sovereign in all things. This we have to go back to because it's difficult for us. You know, God is not taken off guard. Adam and Eve didn't take a bite of the fruit and God was standing there scratching his head saying, oh, geez, I never thought they were going to do this. Now what do I do? Got to come up with a plan B, I guess. That's an errant doctrine called open theism. The belief that God doesn't fully know, isn't fully in control. But I believe Scripture makes it clear that God is fully in control. And we see that in Ephesians 1. So what God does, it seems to be, is God is in control of all things and uses all things, including human choices. There's a couple of key verses that point this out in Ephesians, I'm sorry, in Acts 2. Peter is talking to the people in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost about what has happened in Jesus Christ. And he says this, Jesus, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and you crucified and killed him. God's definite foreknowledge and plan was that Christ should die, and those who accused and crucified him are guilty. Somehow, God incorporates all things, including human choices. 
One way to look at it is the difference between God's perspective and my perspective. You see, from my perspective on a daily basis, I make choices to walk in sin or walk in the ways of God, to believe God or to reject God. From God's perspective, he knows all things. He is powerful in affecting his plan and controlling all things to fulfill his purposes and plans. And I cannot fully know what or how God is doing and how he is working all things towards his end. And sometimes that's really difficult when we go through challenges or suffering and deal with evil directly. And I guess this is a, this is a very bad analogy, and I don't mean to make the connections that it seems to make, but I suppose that in my own thinking, I think about it like the way that we sometimes, when you have a toddler, you do things with the toddler that the toddler doesn't understand. I'm sorry, you may not have candy at 7.30 in the morning. I'm sorry, it is 9 at night, you're going to bed. Because of what you just did, you're going into timeout. We're doing these things that the toddler doesn't understand because we love them, and we want the best for them, and we want them to grow up in wisdom and stature we think of something far deeper than they can think of. And I wonder if it's possible, if we have limited knowledge, limited perspective, if it's possible that God sees things, even in our own challenges, that maybe will work out for his purposes, even if we can't see them now. You know, I cannot fully, I cannot fully know God's predestining purposes. I can't. But I can know him. And that's what enables me to trust him as a sovereign ruler and reigner. Because God's purposes, and we see this in Ephesians 1, God's purposes, his plan, his choosing, his predestining, his control, reveals his love for us. In verse 5 and 7, we read that God chose, God predestined in order to adopt and redeem us. And in verse 11, I want to go to this one because it's one that um, I think is actually mistranslated. It says, In him we have, been, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That phrase, we have obtained an inheritance, is a very convoluted Greek phrase that actually many commentators, many commentators would say that the correct translation is, in Christ, we are God's inheritance. Meaning this, God is working all things because he loves us and wants us. He wants us like like an infatuated young man wants a girl. He wants us like a father who loves his kids wants his kids. In that first century world, your inheritance was everything. It was your most prized possession. It it declared your status and your identity and your worth and your future. And I think in Ephesians 1.11, and this is corroborated by verse 18, which we didn't read, God sees us, you and me, 
as his inheritance, his chief joy and pleasure in all of creation. We are the thing he's looking forward to. We are the ones he's done everything for. See, when I think about God choosing and being sovereign and ruling and reigning, I accept that because the more I've gotten to know him, the more I feel like I can trust him. You know, sometimes when I'm struggling or doubting or suffering, I return to verse 4. In verse 4 we read, He chose us. He chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Think about what that's saying. Before God said, let there be light, he chose you. Before before God laid out the foundations of creation, he chose you. Before Adam and Eve ever took a bite, he chose you. Before Christ hung on the cross, he chose you. This tells me that whatever the circumstances of my life, they are not beyond his foresight or power. It tells me that my future doesn't hang in the balance. That whether I make it into heaven or not is not dependent on my merit or goodness today. It depends on the God who from the beginning of creation saw me and sent his son to die for me. It tells me that all things are working towards his sovereign end, including me and my life. You know, God's purposes, the end towards which it's all going, is found in verses 9 and 10. Because we don't just have God's, God's blessing and God's reign, we also have God's story, and God's story is going somewhere. We read in verses 9 and 10, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everything in all of creation is heading towards being under the authority of Christ. This is where all things belong. And the reason why we deal with so much suffering and brokenness in the world is because things are not under Christ. And even in life, our role is to bring about justice and mercy and to restore all things as they are meant to be under Christ. And this is not just creation's intention. This is our intention. We are made, our purpose is to be under and in Christ. We find our completion, our wholeness, when we're finding our lives submitted to Christ. This is where the peg fits. The symphony is about Christ. And we find the note we are to play when we realize where the symphony is going. This is the big story and how it ends. You know, all great stories, all great stories draw us in. We identify with the characters, and eventually we imagine ourselves in the film, in the plot, in the novel. What we do is we actually write ourselves into the story. And so, I imagine myself battling a Sith Lord. Or I wonder, 
If I would have the courage to step out when the boat door opened to storm the beaches of Omaha on D-Day. Or I imagine what it's like taking that one last journey with my closest friends, walking on those train tracks the summer before we all head off to middle school, that one last summer together. You see, we write ourselves into stories that are good. Because good storytelling taps into our deep human desire for purpose and meaning. Now, the skeptic might claim that this is this desire is learned or hardwired genetically in us in order to enhance our survival. But maybe the reason why we identify with good stories is because we long for a sort of purpose and meaning that really does exist, a purpose and meaning that is found in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us the gospel is the story, the story of creation of how God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world and will one day put everything under Christ's authority. And this is the story that we are meant to write ourselves into by faith in Christ. We enter the story, God's story, by placing our trust in Jesus Christ. As Paul says in verse 12, we put our hope in Christ. In verse 13, we hear the story, the gospel, and we believe this is it. The gospel-driven life involves knowing and understanding the story more and more and more. Trusting the author and letting him write the narrative of our lives. Let's pray. God, who has blessed us, chosen us, adopted us, redeemed us, given us a hope and a future, captivate our imaginations and our spirits with the story of the gospel. May we trust the author of creation, the author of history, the author of our lives. And so write us into this gospel narrative that we might know and enjoy life to the full in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.
Although all hell shouldn't 